Welcome to South Asian Stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Priya Krishna. Priya is an accomplished food writer and author, with publications in the New York Times, The New Yorker, GQ, Taste, Savor, and Bon Appetit, to name a few. She's also written two books, Ultimate Dining Hall Hacks and Indianish, coming out in spring 2019. She has some truly great stories ranging from her love of Indian food, how she got her break in the industry, and her inspiration behind her new book. So, please enjoy my conversation with Priya Krishna. All right, Priya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, We're really, really excited to have you on. And, uh, you know, I'd love to jump in uh, to your background very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. I know we, we share a similar city in terms yeah. of Dallas. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you grew up. Uh, I, I know you, did you move here? You said when you were seven, right? Um, to Dallas. C- can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Dallas? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was born in, in New Hampshire. Um, and then we moved to, we moved to Grapevine first, which is sort of a suburb outside of Dallas. And then we moved to Dallas proper when I was like around seven or eight years old. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I, I always tell people like people think, Oh, you grew up in Texas, you know, cowboys and barbecue and all of that. But, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this. Like my Texas upbringing was so different because, you know, my parents were a part of a much larger Indian community. And so the Texas I knew was a Texas that was like surrounded by Indians. I went to a very like liberal open accepting school. Um, it was like very diverse. Um, and like my idea of like hanging out on the weekend, like wasn't like eating barbecue and like going out to like my family ranch. It was like going out for dosa with my family and then like going over to my cousin's place. So it was, it is very interesting that like I, I grew up in Texas and people have all these conceptions about what a Texas upbringing means, but, but mine was sort of within this very specific bubble. I feel like. And, and did this bubble, did you always feel like that? Or did it something that you noticed over time as you, you know, became, uh, you know, longer, spend longer times in Texas? You know, I don't think I realized it until I, until I was outside of Texas. In fact, I don't think I realized it until even after college when I became a writer and I, and I sat down and, and people were like, you should write about your upbringing in Texas and talk about like, growing up eating barbecue. And I was like, well, that's not what I grew up doing. Like, you're not going to get the Texas content out of me that I think you want because my Texas upbringing was not like that. And sure, I, you know, I think the biggest thing I took that's very stereotypically Texas that I love Tex-Mex food. Um, But beyond that, like I'm not, I, I don't, I don't fit the mold of what people think being a Texan is, whether that's loving barbecue, being conservative, being, you know, having like a, a family ranch. Like I, I very much fall outside of, outside of that stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. There, I was reading your article about your uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and how just that small thing of making that was a, was a big change for you. Can you talk to me about that story of, of, you know, your mom making PB&J for the first time because you know, you've <laughs> never had it? Yeah. Um, you know, it really is a story about just that feeling of when you're a kid of just wanting to belong, just, just desperately wanting to fit in. And, you know, when I was growing up, my mom, um, 
when she would for, at first pack our lunches, she would put whatever Indian food was left over, like dal chawal, lentils and rice, right. um, into Tupperware with whatever sabzi or vegetables we'd had that night. And, and that was our lunch. And I noticed that like the other Indian girl in my school who would did who did that, like, you know, the kids would make fun of her. And so I went home and begged my mom to, to not make Indian food for lunch. And I'd seen people bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And that seems sort of like the, the definition of normalcy to me. So I was like, can you just make this sandwich? And so my mom just like, you know, had never eaten a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in her life, but started making these sandwiches for me because she wanted me to, to fit in, in my new school. And, you know, she, I'm sure she was like a, a, a small part of her was somewhat offended that I was just like rejecting her Indian food um, <laughs> in favor of these like very simple kitty peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But I think, I think she understood. I probably, I think, I think she sort of, she got that I, that I just wanted to fit in. And, and now when I have kids, I just, I, I, I wish that I was, that I had cared about that less because now when I have kids, I want to just be like, be individual, stand out. Like when everyone's having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, like you eat dal chowl, like that's, what's going to make you unique. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it sounds like your mom was such a big influence on you in terms of, you know, how you thought about food growing up. And, um, was there any, you know, you mentioned dal chowl and, and, and stuff. Were there any recipes that she would make that, that are like speak to you in terms of your soul food that you just, love and you know you 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 would like to recreate at some point yeah I mean I'm sort of writing a whole a whole book of all of these things and and the one that really comes to mind is uh her roti pizza which is basically uh the product of my sister and I demanding that she make us pizza for dinner and her not wanting to and then begrudgingly agreeing (laughs) to but saying as a compromise I'll make pizza but on roti Um, and so she, you know, little did we know that roti is like the perfect crust for pizza. Like it gets nice and crispy. Those like great, like charred edges, like it is sturdy enough to hold up to all these toppings. So she would, you know, bake rotis and then put like tomato and mozzarella on top of them. She would put like onions and cheddar and sometimes green chutney on top of others and made these like really amazing fusion pizzas. And to this day, that is like our family comfort food. That's what we can all agree on. We all love them. Wow. And how did your mom come up with that recipe? I know she's the master experimenter, but was it just putting different things in and trying them out or, you know, how did she come up with it? I think it was just the fact that the only bread we had in the house was roti. (laughs) And so she was like, well, this is what we've got. And it, it, it's round like a pizza crust. So we'll, we'll just try it out and see what happens. Yeah. And it turned out great. Yeah. Did you find that, um, you know, as your mom made these recipes, um, you know, I love the background where you had in one of your articles where you said, you know, she didn't know cooking growing up and then she had to learn when she, when she came to the U S how did that, Mm -hmm. how did that affect you in terms of how you, um, you know, got, chose your love for food and, and, and how you, how that became a career for you? I mean, I think it really, the word authentic is, is really interesting to me because, you know, restaurants always use it. Like we have, this is authentic Indian food. This is authentic Ethiopian food. But to me, it really, my mom was such an individual and she was so authentic in who she was. And for, for me, I realized that like authenticity is not your food is the, like, my mom's food is the closest to what you can find in India, because that's not true. My mom's food is not really what you find in India, because 
she didn't learn to cook until she, until she immigrated here. And she right. took the memories of her grandmother's cooking and combined it with like the techniques she was watching on cooking shows on PBS and when she was traveling the world, working in the airline industry. But her food was very like authentic to her identity and authentic to to where she came from. And I think I was really inspired by the fact that like everyone's cooking and the way everyone eats is this like unique confluence of all of the experiences they've had in a lifetime. Like everyone is like authentic to themselves and everyone's tastes are, you know, authentic as long as it speaks to, you know, who they are and where they've been and, and what they've experienced. And I just find food to be such a fascinating medium through which to, to tell those stories and a really, really interesting entry point to sort of understand what authenticity means for, for individuals. Um, and so I think, you know, looking back, her creativity, her innovation, like the fact that she'd had all these experiences and brought them all together through her cooking was really inspiring to me. Yeah. And I love how you brought up authenticity, because I think, you know, being a South Asian growing up in, in the U.S., you always wonder, like, what is authentic? Is it my American you know, values or is it my Indian values? How do I combine the two? So, you know, you, you spoke about authenticity. How does that apply to you and in, in, in terms of um, how you approach being Indian as well as being American at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's difficult because I grew up almost being like a little bit ashamed of, of who I was. I, you know, at school, I was one of a few Indian kids. I, yeah. I, I definitely didn't feel like being Indian was was something I should embrace. You know, I, I did Indian dance because I, because I liked it, but it definitely, I, I compartmentalized the Indian part of my, myself and the American part of myself. And I think now as a food writer, I sort of learned to be really nimble in embracing both of those sides of, of me. And the fact that I straddle both worlds and that like, I am a product of American culture, but also a product of an Indian household. And that that, you know, gives me a really unique voice and a unique perspective. Um, and then I can write about certain things in a way that other people can't. Right. Um, and it's also like, you know, I, I, the stories that I tend to find most interesting are the stories of immigrants or of children of immigrants, because I think it is really interesting how when you come to a new country and you assimilate in one, in one sense, but, you know, also bring to that new country, the, the food, the culture of, of your home country. And sort of, that's what, that's how we get, that's, that's how we get such amazing food that we get in America. Like when people go to new cities and they say, how do I know where to find the good restaurants? I always just say, follow the immigrants, figure out what immigrant communities are in that city. And those will be the cuisines that you want to go after. I love that. Follow the immigrants. (laughs) Was there, um, like recently in the past, few months, are there any stories of immigrants that you have come across that have really inspired you or made you want to write about something? Yeah, I mean, I write pretty regularly about immigrants. Um, One story that, like, I was really proud of that I wrote last year was about this um, bakery in Dearborn, a a suburb of Detroit. It's called Shatila, and they make what I consider to be, like, the best baklava in America. And it's, it was started by, um, a Middle Eastern family during like a very, very tense time, uh, for Middle Eastern populations in Detroit. You know, I, 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 I didn't know this before writing the article, but you know, there was, Detroit has had several politicians who were just straight up 
you know, anti Middle Eastern and, and basically made their platform. Like I will kick Middle Eastern (laughs) Americans out of Detroit, which is insane. And, and yet the most popular bakery in the entire state is a Middle Eastern bakery run by women. Um, and also, you know, Michigan is a state that went red this year in the election. So it is this like very, uh, it's just like it's very interesting the way that people are able to divorce food from politics, but I don't think you can divorce them. You know, if you're enjoying the baklava at uh, Shatila Middle Eastern Bakery, you can't not support Middle Eastern people being in Detroit because that's the whole reason you're able to do that. I don't think you can divorce those two things. And so I I really enjoy using food as like a means of of getting political and like, you know, being like, if you, if you really like this food, but you are anti-immigration, like those things are incompatible with each other. Sure. Sure. And so, how, how did yeah. you discover their story? Did you, someone, did you happen upon it? Did you try the baklava? Yeah. So I've been eating their baklava since I was a kid because we have some cousins that uh, are from Michigan. And Got when it. they would come to Dallas, they would bring us trays of Shatila baklava because they knew how much we loved it. And I would just like savor each of like these little like treasures of baklava and they were so buttery and like just laced with honey. And, and I found out they, they import their honey from the Middle East. They import their nuts from the Middle East. They test like six different butters before they settle on the right one. Like there's a reason these, this is the best baklava in America. Wow. Wow. And, and, and when you, when you come across a story like this, what is your process of, you know, coming up with the angle and coming up with, you know, what you want to write about? Because I'm sure a ton of people who are listening, you know, are interested in food or interested in, in, in writing, but they don't really know what the process is like. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, it'll start with me finding like a place or a person that, that seems interesting to me. Um, so the first step is really like finding the angle. So it's like, what's going to make someone want to click on the story, especially like, you know, if this place is not a place that's accessible to them, like what's going to make someone click on a story about a baklava place in Detroit when they live in New York or LA or Chicago. Um, and for me, it was, you know, not only being like, this is the the best baklava in, in the country, but also being like the best baklava in the country exists in a historically anti Middle Eastern city in a state that went red. So it's really like finding like, what's going to make someone click on this? What gives this story national broader significance? Um, And for me, it was just sort of the fact that, you know, there are people who love this bakery and, and they're the reason that it has become the most popular bakery in the state. And yet, you know, don't, don't support the people behind the bakery. And I just found that really difficult to digest. And I wanted to to tackle that head on. So it's really like finding a place that's interesting and then finding the angle that feels timely, that feels like it's going to have appeal. That's going to take this little place in this little town and put it on a national stage and make it interesting for more than just, you know, the people who can go to it. Got it. And then, so once you find the angle and then, you know, you, you write the story, how do you, how do you pitch it to your potential, website or newspaper or whoever you're writing for, like what happens after that? So you don't write the story. You just develop the idea. And then I just send like, you know, I'll usually reach out. I'm these days I'm mostly contributing to the, to the New York times and to, to Bon Appetit. 
so it's usually one of those places, uh, or the, the New Yorker occasionally. Um, and I'll just reach out to my editor and I'll be like, I found this really cool story. Here's what I think could be the angle. Here's who I want to interview. Um, let me know what you think. And they'll usually get back within like a couple of days to a week and, and will let me know like what they think. They're all, they'll either be like, yeah, this sounds good. Go ahead. They'll be like, you know, this isn't quite it. Maybe like, what about this angle? Or have you tried exploring this? Or they'll be like, no, this just isn't right for us. <laughs> and then you take it somewhere else. Got it. Got it. And then, um, like when you were first trying to break into the, into the field and business, mm-hmm. what was that like? Was it finding someone who worked in the publication that you're interested in and sitting on, sitting down and having a coffee with them? Like what, was it easy, hard to break in, into the food writing business? I, it was really hard for me because, you know, I, I went to school in rural New Hampshire. There weren't like, it's not like going to school at NYU where you can apply to a million internships and media companies. And so I didn't really have a lot of connections. And so I just relied on the fact that I was like very passionate about food, a voracious consumer of food media. So I just like reached out to the publications that were interesting to me, the, the people in the field were interesting to me and, you know, just, just started, yeah, just started cold reaching out and, um, seeing if anyone would respond. And just so happened two people responded, one guy who's a food writer, one person who worked in PR and they sort of just helped give me the lay of the land. They like took my call with me. I chatted with them. And from there, I, my first step in the door was working in PR for a restaurant agency. I didn't like that. Um, why didn't you like that? I, why didn't I like it? Yeah, like um, you. Because I, I wanted to, I wanted to write, and I, it just felt like it wasn't. It, it felt a little formulaic doing PR. You know, it's like. Got it. Someone, some this restaurant is launching brunch, and then you send that to like five people, and it's just not, it's not very creative. There's sort of a, a, a point in which I plateaued, and I was like, this is not really challenging or creative for me. Um, And so I went on to work for a food magazine called Lucky Peach. And through that, that's kind of how I met people in food media. That's how I like made all of the connections. And so when I left Lucky Peach and started working for all these other publications, I had this sort of built-in network of contacts. So I would say like when you're first food writing, it's, it's best to get on staff somewhere first and then from there build your network and then sort of expand outward from that point. Got it. So Lucky Peach was kind of like your big breakthrough of getting on staff there and then, then yeah, going from there. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Definitely. And, and so Lucky Peach, uh, was your experience better than the PR, PR agency? Like, what was it like? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was great. It was, it was such a creative publication. It was run by really creative, forward-thinking people. Um, I wasn't even on the editorial side. I was on the business side, but oh, I felt like... Okay. I was getting to, you know, they let me write for the publication and for the website. They, uh, you know, I was writing, doing all of like our marketing copy, which for Lucky Peach was really like writing in our voice, which was very distinct. It was like weird and funny and tongue in cheek. And I kind of learned how to be really like voicey and and to have like a a tone of tone, a tone to my style. Um, And I was getting to read like what I consider like some of the best food writing in the country, um, and, and sort of see how the sausage gets made in terms of a food magazine. So it really was like a front row seat to, to, to seeing how one of the best magazines in the country gets made. And on top of that, 
Lucky Peach was owned by the restaurant group Momofuku, which is like a big yeah. national entity run by a guy named David Chang. It's a ramen and place, so right? So I was uh, one of there is one ramen place, yeah. Um, and you know, getting to not only have a front seat to have a food magazine gets made, but also how a restaurant group runs was like the best education I could have ever gotten. Um, I mean, I just like, can't say enough, you know, of course, like the job had ups and downs, like every job, but I, I'm so, I'm lucky to have gotten the opportunity to, to get my start there. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And, um, I, I'm, I wanted to dive into what you said about finding out exactly how this stuff is made, how the sausage is made. When you, mm-hmm. when you started there or, you know, you spent some time, was there anything that was surprising about it that you're like, oh, wow, someone from the outside wouldn't know this or, or, oh, wow, I was surprised <laughs> to hear about this. Like, is there an example of that you can share? Yeah. I mean, I think you never know when you're on the outside, how chaotic it is on the inside, <laughs> especially when you're a small independent publication. Like Lucky Beach was a beautiful magazine, but the amount of stress that it took to just get a single issue out the door, even like a single page was just insane. And I think I realized, A, that, you know, to make a really high quality food magazine requires, uh, you know, a ton of, of back and forth and it's a ton of work, but also that like, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen can sometimes dilute the voice of a magazine. I think that was a constant problem at Lucky Peach was that there were a lot of really strong creative voices who wanted their voices to be heard. Um, and, and, and that ended up being a, a big issue. Um, but just like the, just it, people just have no idea how as polished as the plate thing looks on the outside, just how, how chaotic it is to put together right, <laughs> a right. magazine behind the scenes. It's like, a lot of people running around, you know, with their heads cut off, and then you just see, oh wow, this final product looks amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it, what did it take? Like a week to put together? Right, right. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know, like, when you got your first article published, right, and you know, you see it online for the first time, what was that feeling like? Was it a sense of relief? Was it a sense of uh, excitement like when you got your first publication that was inherently yours what was that like yeah it was it was super exciting um I think it was my first piece for Lucky Peach was on up on their website it was a story about dumplings it was just like a personal narrative it was great um just yeah just like when you see your words on a website versus like on a word document on your computer they just like look more impressive somehow right Um, and and you see your name Priya Krishna (laughs) you know, the, the yeah, day you're like, exactly. guys, that's like, me. It feels cool. Like there's, it's, it's like, I still say whenever I see my name in like New York times font or like an article in New York times font, I like feel like my mind mentally processes it as better than it actually is. Oh, totally. It's a New York times font. <laughs> it gives you a whole uh, sense of credibility that you're just like, wow, I made it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this Lucky Peach, like, give us a timeline. When was this? Was this a few years ago or? Um, yeah, like... I started in 2013 and left in 2016. So I was there for about three years. Okay, got it. Got it. And after that, where did you, where did you go? Well, so after that, I um, just started freelancing and that's, got it. and that's what I do now. And so basically like the way that 
that it works in an ideal world is like you settle upon a couple places that you write regularly for. And for me, that's the, T- the Times, Bon Appetit, New York Magazine, and then occasionally The New Yorker. Um, and then those sort of end up being like your regular steady gigs. Um, and so it really doesn't feel like you're freelancing. It feels like you have a job and you have deadlines. And, and that's sort of how I cre- create order for myself. Got it. Got it. And uh, do you, do you like having the freedom to, you know, work for a couple different publications where you can, you know, see your work or is it, how, how different is it for, for working for a few publications versus just one like Lucky Peach? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is really nice having the flexibility. I have to say, I, I like it more than I thought I would. Um, and now sort of working on my cookbook, it's really nice to be able to have the flexibility to be like, you know, today is a day I'm going to exclusively focus on my cookbook and then tomorrow I'll, I'll do reporting for this story. And I feel like as long as you're good at setting a schedule for yourself and being really disciplined, it's, it's a good lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through that. Like I'm sure people uh, who are listening are just like very curious to know as an author, as a writer, like how do you, like, what does your day look like? How do you meet the deadlines mm-hmm. that you need to like, what Walk us through what a mind of an author, food food author, what's sure. that like? So I have like an ongoing spreadsheet with like all of my deadlines. Um, and that's sort of, I, I look at that every day. And then I have a daily do list. Um, and at the end of each day, I'll make a list for the next day. So every day I have a list of things I have to do. And I'll usually have a list of things I have to do. And then a list of like reach goals. Like if I get stuff done really quickly, here are like a few bonus things I could do. Um, and it really is about the thing with freelancing is that it's like very much like when it rains, it pours. And when it's dry, you're parched, you know, it's never, your assignments are never going to come in an orderly fashion. So you can do one after the other. You're always going to be inundated. Like you'll get five assignments in a single week or you'll have a week that's like eerily quiet. Um, so it really is just like highly dependent on like making lists, being really disciplined with yourself, being like, okay, I should have a draft of this story in the next like hour or so, like not messing around on the internet. Like I find that just because I'm really busy, I end up being more productive because there's just like so much to do in a day. Um, and you know, my day could consist of, you know, waking up and reporting all day, transcribing interviews, ending up at a coffee shop, writing up a draft. I could just be, have, I have three stories to write all day, or I could just be like, there are some days where I'm just like on the phone all day doing interviews for a single story. Wow. Um, or I'm out in the field all day reporting. Like I'm in New Jersey reporting on an ice cream shop or I'm traveling to, you know, what I'm doing this weekend, traveling to Salt Lake City to go report on a Hawaiian plate lunch cafe. Like it's just, it's, it's very, it, it really varies. And so from, from start to finish, you know, from the start of the idea to the final publication where you see your name in the New York Times, right? How, how long is there an average amount of time that takes in terms of weeks or months? Mm, it really varies. I had an article I was working on for a year. A year? And I had an article and I had a, a breaking news story that came together in like three days. Wow. So wow. it really varies. <laughs> so it really runs the gamut in terms of time. So yeah, you, as you yeah. said, you can't really plan for things like as things come up, you just have to adapt to the timeline, right? That they, that they post to you. 
Yeah. And thankfully I have editors who are, who are reasonable people. And if they sense that I'm stressed and I'm like, I need more time, they're, they're pretty, if you're a reliable writer, they're, they're good about being flexible with your time. But, but yeah, I mean, it can be, it just sort of depends if, if there's a timely peg, like if, if you're writing a story for, for Thanksgiving, it has to come out, you know, the week before Thanksgiving, you're on like a real time crunch there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's that's tough because most people, you know, who, who are listening probably have normal nine to five jobs, and they're like, man, it, it's a it's a different beast to go from, th- oh my my thing is due in three days versus a, a year must be, must have a different cap to adapt to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and it's not like that story I was working on for a year. It's not like I was assigned it and then reported it for a year. I was like, trying to sort of make sense of it as a story for a really long time and trying to find people that fit in with that story. Sure. So, you know, a lot of it is just like, I will come up with an idea and it'll take a long time for me to like finesse that idea into a real story or it'll take a while to report it. It just depends. And there are some stories I'm just, I've just been sitting on where I'm like, I want to write this story, but I haven't found the exact angle, but one day I will. (laughs) Got it. Got it. And, and, and Priya, talk to me about, um, you know, at, when you first started food writing and you, you said you were, took a while to find your voice, has your writing style or the way you write or how you write, has that evolved over time? And if so, how, how has it? I think so. I, I'd like to think that my writing style is um, somewhere between like, it's like very approachable, but with like an academic level of academic depth of reporting. Like I'm a big researcher. I love doing tons of research, tons of reporting, tons of interviews for a story. But when I write the story itself, like I like to write in a very casual, like conversational way. Like I'm explaining the story to you in person. Yeah. So I like to think it's like the best of both worlds in that, like, you're like, okay, this person has done her research, but, oh, she's explaining it to me in a way that like actually, you know, makes sense and doesn't sound too esoteric. No, that's true. I was, I was reading, uh, you know, a lot of your articles and when I read, I feel like I'm like talking to you on the other side of the table, but you're using words that I study in my SAT class. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's the weirdest thing. And I was like, there's, there was a couple times I've had to look up words. I'm like, what does that mean? But I mean, your style, I've laughed out loud like three or four times reading it because it's just, <laughs> it's, it's just so, um, you know, it's like talking to an old friend. That's uh, that's the best way to describe it. But who has a, a, a huge vocabulary compared to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I I just borrow words from other writers that I find very impressive and try to incorporate them into my own writing. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. Other writers, like um, you know, you said that there's 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 people and and there's writing that that have inspired you. Could you name a couple that come to mind? Um, that have really honed your skill or have inspired you to write the way, like who are some authors that, or some books that that have done that for you? So at Lucky Peach, Chris Ying and Rachel Kong, they were two of our editors. And Chris writes in that like pally, your best friend writing you a letter way. Rachel's writing is so literary, but just so like, just touches you to your very soul. She has a book called Goodbye Vitamin. It's a novel and it's just like, every word is perfect. It's, it's so well-written. Um, and then, you know, honestly, like the, the food writer I probably look up to the most is your, your aunt Tejal. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, her food writing is 
just spectacular, especially her, her restaurant reviews in, in, in particular, just like the way she talks about food is just so exciting and vibrant and, and doesn't feel like she's copying anyone. She's just like, so such an original and her and her, another of her New York Times staffers, a woman named Lagaya Michan, who does restaurant reviews. She, you know, has a literary background. So she just the way that she, I've never seen anyone describe food the way that she describes food. Like she draw makes, does similes and metaphors that I, I never would have thought of. And it's very aspirational for me. <laughs> and is it something that, um, like, let's say there's a style that you love or like a piece that you like, how do you, how does one get better at being a food writer? Is it writing more? Is it reading more? Is it trying to emulate styles a little bit and find your own voice? Like if I'm a food writer who's um, up and coming or who wants to get better, what what advice would you give me if I wanted to be a better food writer or, or find my own voice? I mean, yeah, write a lot and read a lot. I think those are the biggest things. And one thing I try to do when I read is like pick up on like the way someone does something. Like I love the way they they structured the sentence or like, that's an interesting way of describing food. Like one thing that Lagaya does, which is a really small thing, but the one that I think makes her writing seem less cliche is like, instead of being like this smelled, this, this smelled smoky, or it was like smoky. It was like, like the, the pizza crust was like charred with smoke. Like she turns like adjectives into nouns and it just like, makes that her writing come alive. And I love the way that she does that. And it's just like, you just, after you read enough things, you just sort of pick up on the way that people describe things. Like one thing Tejal does, which I think is like adorable. And I haven't told her this, but like she doesn't describe things as small or tiny. She uses the word we, like (laughs) W-E-E. And I just find that so charming and endearing. She's just like, the like wee little oysters sitting on the counter. (laughs) I just like, yeah, she. Uh, or she's like we oysters. I just like find that so endearing, and just everyone has those little like writerly idiosyncrasies, and you don't want to copy those, but it's just like sort of understanding like what is it about this piece that made it so good, and then sort of taking that and and making it your own, being being like, what are my idiosyncrasies? What what can I bring to the table that's different? Sure, sure. Um, and 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 going off that point, um, you know, you you talk about Thajil, you talked. Uh, about the other writer is like being a South Asian and, you know, um, do you find a lot of camaraderie or do you find people in this, in the food writing space that are South Asian compared to other industries you say, like, do you feel that you kind of know everyone in the space or there's other people you still want to meet? There's a lot of people I really, I still want to meet, but I definitely feel like there's a camaraderie around between the the South Asians and just the Asian community in general, or just like writers of color. Sure. Uh, And, you know, people like Thajol and this woman named Korsha Wilson have been really amazing at like sort of helping to build communities for writers of color where we can just like come together and just like talk about like the issues that we face as writers of color. And I think that creating spaces like that are are so important um, because it's all too often that I hear editors in chief, editors in chief of food magazines, in which the staff is mostly white, just being like, "Well, like, where are all the writers of color? Like, they don't—they're not the ones that come through my door." And I always want to be like, "There are hundreds of us, just like 
just ask and we'll introduce you to them. Um, what do you think the disconnect so, is? Like, you know, if somebody wants a writer of color or a certain angle, is it is it they don't know where to look or do they not know enough? Like, what's the why, why isn't there more writers of color in the spaces that or in the in the publications that want it? I mean, I think it really is like a it's a question of networks. Like the people at the top of most media companies are mostly white and mostly male. And it's a trickle down effect. Like those people are going to hire people in their network to be around them. And oftentimes those are also white people and oftentimes also male. Um, and then those people will then hire people below them and those people hire people below them. So if at no point is anyone hiring someone outside of their network or outside of the people they know, it's, it's very easier for a food magazine to just be entirely white people of roughly the same backgrounds. But when you read publications in which the staff is diverse, and I don't even mean diverse by race, but just diverse in the cities they come from, their orientations, their perspectives, their political views, like that is what leads to really rich writing. Like one publication I think is doing an exceptional job of that is one called Eater. It's a food website and they have one of the diverse, most diverse staffs I've ever seen. And it's really reflective in their writing. Like their writing feels like, you know, people are coming at it from different angles. Everyone is bringing their unique expertise to the table. It's not just like a singular voice and a singular perspective and everything else sort of feeling like on the periphery. Got it. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, c- cool. I want to quickly switch gears to talking about your book writing because, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people listening have always dreamed about writing a book and they have their favorite authors. Um, I, I know your first book was The uh, the Ultimate Dining Hacks you wrote in, in 2014. Tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me the story behind that. Like, how did you come up with the idea? How did you, you know get a publisher like I'm sure a lot of people don't know how that all works can you can you walk us through that sure I mean so my first book was kind of an anomaly in that I didn't know what I was doing and I was in college and so I googled how to write a book proposal (laughs) wrote something up and then went with my dad to the post office and mailed 50 proposals to 50 publishing companies um which was you know very I would not recommend doing that. Uh, but you know, what happens is if you don't have an agent and you're sending your book proposal unsolicited, it ends up in this thing called a slush pile, which is sort of the, the, the unsolicited manuscripts that came in. And somehow my book, Ultimate Dining Hall Hacks, got picked up out of a slush pile and brought in front of an editor and turned into a book. Um, so that was pretty miraculous. How, how but, did that happen? Did you find out what like the story behind of how they picked yours up out of the, the slush slush pile? I think, you know, just like s- some editors were going through the slush pile and they saw the title of mine and they were like, yeah, this could this could be something interesting. I think I just got really, really lucky. But that's not how it usually goes. How it usually goes is you come up with a great proposal, you a, a good concept, and you take it to an agent. Um and you get an agent and your agent is the one who sells the book. Um, and agents are the ones who have contacts at various publishing companies who sort of know how to get your book in front of the right people who, you know, have, they have lawyers working for them who negotiate your book contract. Um, 
And that's really the best and most direct way to get a book published is you get an agent. And it doesn't cost anything to get an agent, um, but they do take a, a small cut off the top. But in my experience, it's it's well worth it because they're they're able to get you more money and in front of more editors than, than, than you ever could as just like a independent author. Got it. Got it. So when you're writing the ultimate dining hall hacks, you know, you're in college, you really didn't know what you're doing. You submitted the you know, 50 proposals. One came back. What happened after that? Like, did you uh, like to walk? Tell us the story behind that. Yeah. Um, so I, I got an email that was like, "We're really interested." Was that like the best day s- of like the year? For it was. You? It was. It was bizarre. I was like not expecting it. Um, they were like, "We're super interested in this. Um, can you send us some more recipes?" Unfortunately, I was with my cousins hiking the Himalayas in India. No way. <laughs> So I emailed my dad and my dad had to like go to my personal computer, track down these recipes and then send them to this publishing company on my behalf. (laughs) That's hilarious. So he's like, Hey, um, I'm a Priya Krishna's assistant. Uh, These are, these are the stories. Exactly. Exactly. He was like, here's some recipes. And then as soon as I got back from India, we scheduled, we had like a series of phone calls in which I talked about how the book could be marketed, why I thought it was a good idea. Like just sort of, they, they want to make sure that their authors are dynamic enough and, you know, can speak fluently about their book. Um, and that they're sort of the kind of people that they would want to, to represent their brand as a publishing company. Um, and so after a, a bunch of meetings, I finally, you know, got, um, an offer and they basically, will send you it the it's 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 just like they give you what's called an advance and it's basically like a a lump sum that they give you to be like this is you know us investing in you as an author this is what we're paying for you to write this book um and that's the bulk of the money that you'll make from the book and so of course it's like fresh out of college like got this book advance I was like I'm rich and honestly yeah. it was like a piddle it was like a piddly book advance compared to most but I was just like happy that I was going to be a published author and that I was getting paid any amount of money for this. <laughs> yeah. You must've been over the moon. Like, um, how did you, did you use the advance to buy something for yourself or how did you, like, I'm curious, what did you do with them with the advance? I put it in my bank account and then invested in some mutual funds. <laughs> All right. All right. Good for you. I, I, I'm very conservative with my money. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And then, so once you got the advance, you, you wrote the book, um, did you have to go through many versions of it or how did it go? How did, what was the process after that? Yeah. I mean, you submit a version and then they, you know, make some edits, uh, to the manuscript and then you send it back and then it goes into, it gets laid out into a book and then they send you pages and then you go through each page and you mark up the pages with your notes and then you send it back again. Then they send you more pages, which you mark up again. And then you sort of just go back and forth enough times until you're satisfied with the, with the pages at hand. Um, it's a very long process. And, you know, there's a reason why books take multiple years to, to make. But, you know, by the time you hold the actual book in your hands, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, like, walk me through when you got the first book in your hand. Where were you? What were you doing? And how, how did you feel? I think it was sent to my office at Lucky Peach and I don't think anyone was in the office at the time, but I was just like giddy with excitement. Um, and I remember sending a picture to my dad, uh, and my mom and them just being like, so, so excited. Uh, 
I mean, we were just like, we just couldn't believe that this was actually happening. That like, you know, I was, I think I was like 22 and I had a book with my name on it. It was nuts. Yeah. And and then once you got it, did you, um, like, did you market it at all? How did you get it out there to, to people to, to know about it? So my publishing company um, sort of had a really solid plan and that I basically went on my book tour to uh, college campuses and went, had like a partnership with Barnes and Noble College in which I just like went to different Barnes and Noble colleges and, and talked to students, like went into cafeterias, like showed them how to make the most of their meal plan. And that ended up being sort of the bulk of of what I did. And it was really fun. It was like, it was like going on a college tour all over again. And in fact, at pretty much every single college I visited, I would like go on the official admissions tour and it was really fun. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not considering this, uh, this college, but here's my new book, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, um, like when you went on these college tours, did you get feedback on the book? Like what was the reception like? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. Like there were certain, there were certain colleges I went to where the students were so engaged and so excited and just like thrilled. And then there were others where it was just like crickets, just like no one, no one came. They weren't interested at all. So it really is like, it was just like it going on a book tour is a very humbling experience in that like you go from, you know, having a crowd of like 50 people to having a crowd of like two people. And so you just kind of have to deal with the uncertainty that like certain cities will be, your book will be really popular and other stops. It just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you never know. Um, and so yeah. I, I, I know that you're, you're, you're coming out with your new book, uh, Indianish, which I know uh, a lot of people are excited about. And, and just the story behind it is awesome. I know you mentioned a little bit at the beginning with your mom, um, how has, you know, launching your first book at 22, um, has that experience made you do that a little bit differently this time around? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely, I mean, I'm definitely a lot more thoughtful about how I'm going about it. It's, it's a lot more difficult. Like there's more recipes in this one. Um, there's photography in this one, which I didn't have in the other one. And like, I, I want to like leverage the fact that, you know, I've been in this industry and I've seen a lot of cookbooks and I want my cookbook to stand out. And so I feel like I have a sense for like what the norms of the cookbook world are and, and how I can break them. Yeah. So I want to, I want to jump into that. So what are the norms of a cookbook? I'm sure everyone here, uh, who's listening has used a recipe before and you know, it's pretty pretty formulaic like what what is something that you're you're doing differently yeah I mean so I'm incorporating a lot of there are photos but I'm incorporating a lot of illustrations I have this amazing uh Pakistani Canadian uh artist her name's Maria Kamar and she does uh Indian pop art and she's doing pop art for my book so there will be intermixed with these recipes, like sort of images of like my family members depicted as, as pop art characters by Maria. Wow. Um, and, yeah. And what exactly is, is, is pop art? Is it, is it a, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with the term. Yeah. It's like, um, Lichtenstein or, or Andy Warhol, just like sort of like the, um, people turned into sort of, uh, cartoon, like comic book characters. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so like, Next to each recipe, there'll be a pop art of your family or something around the the topic. 
not next to each recipe, but there will be, they will be throughout the book. Okay. Um, and then there'll be like little, you know, um, the, the, the photos themselves are really different. Like I didn't want just like pretty food photos. So a lot of them are, are a little bit weirder or monochromatic or just like, you know, more, more movement driven. And the, the, the photos, it definitely doesn't look like any Indian cookbook you're used to seeing. Like there are no, there are none of those like weird, like, you know, like those, those bowls that all like Indian food at restaurants seems to come in with those little handles. Like there's none of the like stereotypical in like quote unquote Indian, uh, like serveware that Indian restaurants use. It's not a lot of the colors that you are used to seeing in Indian cookbook. The idea is that it, it should change the notion of what you think Indian food can and should be. That's incredible. That's that is that's going to be the coolest thing. I, I it made me think of like when I asked my mom for a, a recipe that's something that she's made. You know, the funny thing is my mom doesn't even use a cookbook anymore, right? She, everything is rote memory for her. No, no Indian mom does. Not right. a single one. And then, you know, when you ask her like, hey, how much of this should I put in? She's like, oh, just a pinch or just, you know, she just uses, yeah. loses her finger. Like, and then you're kind of yeah. like, how, how much is that? Like, how, how have you... How have you dealt with that, learning the, the recipes from your mom or elsewhere? My mom, thankfully, is like a very gifted recipe writer. Um, so for the most part, when she would write down the recipes, like she did a pretty good job estimating like my pinch is equal to like a half teaspoon. She did a very good job with that. Got it. Um, so she gave you the right metrics for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were some where I was like, Mom, you said to add a tablespoon of turmeric, and then now this thing tastes like very bitter. But but for the most part, she did a pretty good job. Like they uh, they worked out they they worked out pretty well. Um, and I think that's just like a testament to 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 my mom and and how good she is at at recipe writing. But there were definitely times where like I would be testing something, and my mom would try to do something that wasn't in the recipe, and I'd be like, Hey, if you're gonna do something, you have to tell me what you're doing because people won't have you standing behind them being like, no, 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 do this. Like, the <laughs> recipe has to have all the instructions. Right, right. It needs to be very, very thorough. Um, yeah. In, in your article, when you, you mentioned that, you know, your process of writing the book, you, you came home to Dallas and, you know, learning the recipes and, and, and trying them out with your, with your dad doing the dishes. I thought that was hilarious. Like what, <laughs> wa- walk us through what that was like. Like, you know, you said you were so nervous having your mom taste that. Like, can you give an example of a, a, a recipe that you made that you were nervous to have your mom try? Yeah. I mean, there's one dish that I absolutely love. It's my mom's curry, which is basically like a, a yogurt and turmeric based soup. Sure. Um, and it's delicious. It's, it's so, so good. And it's one of my favorite dishes. And when I made it based off her recipe, I loved it, but mom's really picky about her curry. It like has to be this like perfectly silky texture, the right pale yellow color, the right thickness, you know, with the swirls of oil and chili. And so she would come home and, you know, seeing her kind of inspect the bowl and being like, is this the right color? Is it the right consistency? It was really nerve wracking. It was like, you know, serving my mother her own food. Sure. Um, but it also meant that when it turned out well, it was like the ultimate triumph. <laughs> how, how long did it take for you to perfect it? Um, that recipe, actually, it was pretty, that recipe kind of, it, it it was pretty good from the get-go. But there were a couple that we had to to perfect. Like there's a recipe for 
this whole roast cauliflower with a green pea chutney. And, you know, I kept messing it up. My mom's recipe kind of was wrong a couple of times. We, I think, made that chutney for the cauliflower at least 10 different times until we tasted it. And we were like, this is the one. Yeah. Making sure it's the, it's the right, right, right mixture of everything. And it must exactly. have been so, so freeing once you got the right recipe. You're like, wow, I actually made something that passed the high bar that my mom usually makes it at, right? Totally. And my mom has the highest standard. So I'm like, if this dish passes like my test and my mom's test, and then I guess even more importantly, my dad's test that right. belongs in the book. Right. Got it. Um, cool. So like, so Indianish, yeah, I know it's coming out in, in, in spring. Like how, how far are you in the process? Uh, where can people, um, when can people expect to, to have it in their hands? It comes out spring 2019. Okay. So, uh, early next, you probably be able to pre-order it early next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle of the manuscript right now. The recipes are tested in a close to final shape. I'm just working on the narrative part of that, you know, telling the story behind the book, which I, I like that part the best because that's what I feel like I'm, I'm probably the best at. <laughs> Got it. So this yeah. is, this is, this is the good part. It was the recipe part that was the most stressful for me. <laughs> and are you done with that part or is, is it now just the, the narrative that's left? For the most part, I'm done with it. There are going to be a couple recipes I'll want to retest, but for the most part, I'm, I'm done with it. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Cool. So yeah. I, I just wanted to, you know, uh, to wrap this up with a few rapid fire questions that, you know, sure. that, that people have, uh, have asked and that, that we'd love to know a little bit more. So first, um, you know, it, it can be in the past few months or, or past year. Has there been something that comes to mind that has been your most worthwhile investment, both time and money? And it, it can be in the food writing space or just things that have that you just like, man, I love this and this increases my my happiness by a good 25% every day. Uh, well, two things. One, a really awesome backpack. Okay. Like I bought a great backpack and just having a good backpack that's stylish and functional you know, as a freelancer, I'm living out of my backpack during the day. So having a really good backpack that you like is a great investment. Uh, um, what, what backpack is that exactly? I have a Herschel backpack and it's like a navy blue. It's navy blue and it's got light blue. I actually didn't buy it for myself. My Sonia mommy, my aunt Sonia bought it for me. But she has excellent taste in backpacks, and I highly recommend that Herschel backpack. <laughs> okay, awesome, awesome. Um, the second thing, and this is like... I. I have gotten into sort of like more into taking care of my skin and my, of my, and, and my just like self care in general. And I kind of gave myself like a night nighttime routine where I put toner on my face and I put moisturizer. Um, and this is going to sound so silly, but it is really nice having like a little routine where you can, you know, moisturize tone and like, feel like your skin yeah. is very nice and glowing at the end of each night before you go to bed. And it's also like just a nice like daily thing that you can just like make a part of your routine. Um, it, so it sounds silly, but just like a fancy moisturizer here and there, like just like a fancy skincare product that just makes you feel really good is totally worth it in my yeah. opinion. And, and can you share exactly what that is? I'm sure the listeners would, would love to to know what um, you use. Sure. Okay. I use the Neutrogena alcohol-free toner. And then I use the, for the moisturizer thing called, called Etude House. It's like a Korean skincare brand and it's called their deep cream. 
Okay. And that's great. I'll be I sure to recommend. I'll be sure to be ask my wife if she uses any of those products <laughs> <laughs> to, to confirm or deny your your claims. Cool. They're they're great. <laughs> cool. So and then the other question um, I'd love to know is. Um, has there been a piece of literature or a book or a movie that has had the most impact for you in the past six months that comes to mind? Yeah. Um, I mean, this one, this is like what I tell, but like goodbye vitamin. It's a book by that author. I was telling you about Rachel Kong. Yep. It's the book I would, I would recommend that book to, to anyone and everyone. It's basically about this girl named Ruth who returns home when her, um, father is diagnosed with Alzheimer's and it sort of sounds like a really trite concept, but just the, it's written so beautifully and includes all these like little funny details about life. Um, like I, I literally like laughed out loud at various points in the book. Um, and I've just sort of been, whenever I need to gift, give someone a gift, I usually just buy them that book. Um, so I would highly recommend it. And is that a book that someone, how did you discover it? Did someone tell you about it or did you read about it somewhere? Uh, Rachel's a close friend of mine. So I, you know, have been, we used to work together at Lucky Peach. And so I've been following her writing career for a long time. So I was, I was like the first person to, to buy the book when it came out. Perfect. Perfect. Um, another question for you is, are there any unusual habits that you have that, um, whether it be how you write or, you know, how you go about your day that, that, you know, you, you see like, oh, mo- most people don't do this, but I do it this way? Um, let's see. Uh, I eat as a snack. This is weird. When I like, as like a sort of healthy snack, I will put peanut butter in a bowl and then top it with jelly and just like eat peanut butter and jelly. And then sometimes I'll put like some salt on top to like give it like that sweet and saltiness. But I just like really enjoy just eating like plain peanut butter with with jam. I guess that uh, that PB and J store you mentioned earlier just comes keeps con- keeps on coming. Yeah, I love peanut. I think peanut butter and jam is like the greatest combination ever. So that um, I also another weird habit is I I write first drafts of stories really quickly and they're usually really bad. Like I write really awful first drafts, but I'm really good at editing it from there. I just need to have like something on paper. Yeah. So like my writing style is just like writing, like quickly writing a horrible first draft and then making it better. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a quote that I love that I think about when I'm doing anything writing related or just creating content is, you know, putting writing or is putting sand in a sandbox and and then making sandcastles out of it later. Like the first draft is just putting yeah. as much stuff as you can in and then, you know, editing, which I, which I thought was a great way to put it. Yeah, totally. Um, cool. And then I think we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I just love to know, you know, if you had to give any advice to an up and coming South Asian person in the field, you know, who's had to fight a lot for what they want and, you know, who have, mm-hmm. who is a little bit under, underrepresented, is there any advice or, or things that they should think about? Um, what, what advice would you give them and why? Well, lean, lean into what makes you different. First of all, like, I feel like my, uh, really where I found my voice as a writer is just like writing about my, uh, my unique, my upbringing in Texas, being Indian American, like those sorts of things really resonate with people. Like if you write about what makes you unique, like it'll not only feel authentic to you, but it'll feel authentic and relatable to other people. Um, 
And I feel like that's true, not just with writing, but just like leaning into like your skills and your, and not trying to do something that you just know isn't in your wheelhouse. Um, and like knowing your strengths and weaknesses is really huge. Um, the other thing is just like, especially if you're early on in your career, like capitalize on every opportunity. When I first started working at Lucky Peach, I went to every single networking event. I made sure to get people's business cards and email them the day after and follow up. And if I wanted to meet with them, I asked them to meet separately. Like I was very aggressive about, you know, people think networking is a dirty word, but it's really just like keeping your eyes and ears open, constantly introducing yourself to people and like making, that's how you kind of make, make yourself known in the industry. Um, and, and not turning down invitations, you know, you never know who's going to help you out later on, who's going to have a gig for you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all about just making my network as huge as, as huge as possible. And then paying it forward. Like if a South Asian person emails me about how to get into the field, like I'll always, I'll always shoot an email or sit down and talk to them. Um, really the way to get more South Asians and more people of color into your field is by creating opportunities for them and making sure that, you know, when, if you're hiring for something or you're recommending, recommending someone for something, I try to always make sure I'm recommending writers of color because I want to create even more opportunities. I love that. I I really like that. I I, I think that it's just so important um, to pay it forward. And what you said about saying yes to everything and having that little bit of a hustle to, to get what you want. Mm -hmm. I love that you went to every networking event. That that is an awesome, awesome story. Um, Cool. So, uh, you know, I'd love to leave it at, um, do you have any final asks for the audience, anything that you want to leave them with um, as, 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 as a parting word? Um, well, I mean, one thing that I'm really hoping is that more so than any other audience, I want my book to resonate for, for other Indian Americans and other first generation, which is why I'm so happy to be, to be on the show because I I feel like a lot of Indians our age feel really proud of their culture, but, but don't cook a lot of Indian food because they sort of view it as really complicated and, and their parents just didn't teach them. And so I'm kind of hoping that, you know, as, as much as my book will be uh, an accessible entry point for people who are not Indian in Indian flavors, that I can hopefully help other Indians, like sort of recapture their love for, for the Indian food that they grew up with. And of course, my Indian food won't be the same as Indian food everyone else grew up with, but I hope that it provides them with that same, you know, sense of, of comfort. Perfect. Perfect. That's, that's an awesome, awesome thing to leave with people with. So, you know, if, if people want to, to find you or, um, you know, get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way people can reach out or where, where can people sure. find you? On Twitter and Instagram, I'm, uh, at PK gourmet, PK, uh, G O U R M E T. Um, and then on my website, uh, it has contact info, or if you want to take a look at my writing, it's Priya Krishna, P R I Y A K R I S H N A, uh, dot me, M E. Awesome. Awesome. And for all the listeners, this is going to be in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to Krishna or Priya, um, Priya Krishna, you can, uh, you can do that there. Um, well, awesome. Thank you so much, Priya. We, 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 uh, we, we really, really appreciate it. This has been outstanding and, and I think people can get a lot of, a lot of cool things from it. So we, we really appreciate you having you on uh, South Asian stories. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, it's Samir again. 
If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.